five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everybody. I am recording from Palm Springs, California today with photographer Ross Whitaker. Ross, how are you? Good. So I... I think I've known you about 15 years because the festival has been going, Palm Springs Photo Festival is 14 years. Yeah. And I, I think, did I know you before that? If not that? a photo breakfast before that, maybe. Okay. So anywhere, uh, it's, it's yeah. mostly true, 15 years. And I've wanted to do this, this interview ever since I started doing interviews for a couple of reasons. One, you're one of the funniest photographers that I've ever met. And two, you've had a career that the industry is not, there are no careers like this anymore, I don't think. You've had such an interesting career and no. done so many different kinds of work. It's changed now. Yeah, it's changed a lot. And, uh, and three, you tell really good stories. And so I want to go back to the very beginning. You are, you are from Los Angeles. I'm from Studio City. Studio City, to be exact. Absolutely, Studio City. And what was that like? It was suburban, you know, it was suburban L.A. You know, everybody's dad either worked for aerospace or the studios. Everybody's dad. Everybody. My dad worked in aerospace. He did. Next door for aerospace. You know, Lytton and JPL and all those places. And then, you know, across the street, the guy was a painter at Universal. And the guy down the street was, you know, a prop master at Warner Brothers. And it was just... It just seemed normal? Yeah, that's what it was, you know. And, and, um, and then where'd you go to high school? North Hollywood High. God. North Hollywood High. I just, I, it just makes me think of fast times at Ridgemont High. Go Huskies. <laughs> <laughs> and so dad was in aerospace? Yeah. My dad worked at JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs. Yeah. And, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. What did he, what was he, what was his? Policies and procedures. He wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just think, you know, before, uh, before the internet or the yeah. computer, there were gigantic notebooks on the shelf that was, you know, vacation and sick leave policies and procedures or, you know, wow. all that. And so somebody had to write that stuff. And Did he consider himself a creative person? No. Okay. No. In fact, he was of that generation, you know, post-World War II where... Your, your work life was entirely separate from your family life. Okay. I mean, when I would go to work with my dad, you know, as the second hand was sweeping up to five o'clock, he was putting his jacket on and left and, you know, came home and then started for him what his life was, was the family. Okay. You know, came home as soon as he could. There was no such thing as overtime. It was just doing time. Yeah. That's pr- and how long did he work there? 25 years. That's a good run. Yeah. That's cool, though, JPL. I mean, that's one of those places that... Oh, as kids, we were, we were golden because we, you know, all the assemblies were... We'd like to thank Ross Whitaker for bringing in the film of Apollo 6 or, you know, all the films <laughs> oh, yeah. that JPL had. I was just the king of the assemblies because my dad said, well, I have access to oh, all of God. Caltech's... Yeah, the other the Film, other kid has like know. the homemade experiment, and you're like, oh, by the way, here's a behind the scenes with Apollo Six. I've got some I've got some footage you might not have seen. Here's a prototype of the digger for Mars Explorer. <laughs> and so you uh, went to went to high school, 
And did you see yourself as a creative person back no. then? You didn't. What was, no, what, how was did working, you see yourself? I was working at Steve Miller's Texaco at Laurel Canyon in the Ventura Freeway, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Gas station. And gas station. And my friends, in their infinite wisdom, would make sure to come by every Friday and Saturday night to go, hey, how's work going? We're going to go out now, yeah. and you're not. Yeah. So I did that for, uh, I don't know, a year or so, and uh, then uh, I had a friend in high school whose dad had a commercial studio in Hollywood. Okay. He was doing catalogs for the May Company, catalogs for Bullocks and Broadway, the, the, you know, the SoCal department stores. And, uh, and he needed someone to process E3 color film at night. And so I finished school. I'd go in there about five o'clock and work until 10, processing all the film, hang it up, and then go home. So just to back up a second, E3, which was, was there an E4 between E3 and E6? Yes. Okay. And so, five and six. Okay. So <laughs> this was 1969. Oh my God, that was the year I was born, by the way. Yeah, so, was, uh, so for those of you out there who might have might still know what slide film is, which <laughs> the, the the modern flavor color of that, reversal film, color, color reversal uh, positives. That was uh, E6 is is the flavor of the month right now, even though it's dying rapidly. So prior to that, E5, E4, E3. So this is going going back. So that, was it just fewer chemicals that you had to run through? Well, like there was one thing interesting. You actually had to do the reversal with a light bulb. So you opened up the processor at, at some point after the first developer, and you turned the light on and oh. dip and dunk the film so it was really covered with you know a 500-watt light bulb, and then you continue processing, and that's how you did the reversal. E6 is a chemical reversal. Yeah. So. And so you started working here processing film, and obviously this is what sort of somehow planted the seed in you that maybe you wanted to... Well, what I did was I, I, I just thought that the photo studio was really interesting because, first of all, I liked the idea that it was instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You know, I had friends who and was thinking of reading the law, and it just was an abstract. Uh, that's my dog barking. Um, it's Jasper, by the way. It's a, an, uh, it just took too long. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of a photo studio of a job came in on Monday, you propped it Tuesday, you shot it Wednesday, and you delivered it on Friday, I just thought was fantastic. I thought that was very interesting. And um, I like the idea you made something with your hands. Um, I just thought it was interesting. However, it was highly technical. Yeah. I looked at it as a, just a technical exercise. And... Uh, so then there were, I don't know, there were four photographers working there um, shooting catalogs. And uh, one of them said, well, if you want to do this, you've got to go to college. So I, I picked, uh, I had Art Center, I had RIT, the mm -hmm. various photo colleges in the, in the early 70s. And I went up to Santa Barbara to Brooks yep. right after coming back from R Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT. Yeah. And at RIT, I was taking the tour of the campus, and I noticed that <laughs> on certain uh, uh, pastoral paths through the thing, there were chains on the side of the path. I said, why are there chains on the side? And they're so high up. And they go, well, that's to hold on to because in winter, the wind will blow you right down the hill on the ice. 
And you're like, I went, okay. you shut up. No, because I'm a Southern California kid. And they go, no, 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 really, we're not joking. It, you have to hold on because it'll blow you right down the bottom of the hill. And so then I came home and six days later went to Santa Barbara to mm-hmm. see Brooks Institute yep. and was in this Spanish land-grant mansion looking down at the harbor with the spinnakers blowing in the wind. Thought, I thought about it for about, I don't know, four or five seconds and said, yeah. I think I'm going to go here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went to Brooks Institute. Yeah, Brooks is, when you get up there, you kind of feel like it's a, you know, it's, it's a gag. You look yeah. around and you're like, no, no, this, this is impossible. And that, at that time, it was an interesting school because it was, uh, since the very beginning, Ernest Brooks Sr. and his son, Jr., the Brookses were l- running their institution on the GI Bill, which at that time was Vietnam. So... Most of the most of the student body there, which was relatively small, it was like a thousand yeah. people, um, were Vietnam vets that wanted a you know a two year education, a bachelor's wow. degree in two years because they made you do all your lower division elsewhere. Okay. So when you arrived, it was only it was like uh, thirty months. And you went year round. They treated it very professionally, and it was all GI Bill. I was the youngest kid there because I missed Vietnam uh, by three draft numbers, and so um, it was fantastic. And the Brooks were, you know, since it was GI Bill, it was it was taken very seriously. It was not it was not a what ultimately doomed Brooks Institute was the Brooks's aged out, you know, mm-hmm. senior yeah. died, junior was in his early 70s, and they just had to sell it. And they sold it to a for-profit school, yep. and that was the end. Yeah. Because they just sold all the real estate, raped it for all the money they could, jacked up the tuition to insane amounts because we'll get you all the loans you need. And then quadrupled the student yeah, body. You know, yeah. and and it, it, with no guarantee of any employment. And then it just got worse and worse. And So I have a little Brooks story. So I went to University of Texas in Austin because they had a good football team. That, right. was, that was my, uh, my criteria for, for choosing a school. And uh, there was a guy who was the, a TA who, who had gone to Brooks and graduated. And the Brooks guys were so technical. They knew everything about technically about photography. And they just made us feel like idiots because we were in photojournalism and that was the only thing we were learning. And so the techniques and, and there was no like studio lighting. And, you know, we started, we did one assignment with a four by five and then checked him in and it was 35. It was pretty, pretty uh, dumbed down, I guess you could say. And uh, I remember my experience with him was the semester after I left uh, the photo program, they got Macintoshes. So we did everything with a T-square and tracing paper, all of our layouts and design and press on type and everything. Right. And they they got one Macintosh and they put it in a room that had one of those tall, narrow windows filled with the wire security mesh. And they led us (laughs) one at a time to the window and they pointed in and said, that's a Macintosh don't touch it. And then <laughs> next, and the next kid would walk up. That's a Macintosh. Don't touch it. And the Brooks guy was the one that did it. So that's as close as I got uh, to Brooks. When you went into that school, what kind of photographer did you think you were going to be? I had no clue. I, I, I my only, re- my only reference was Joe Maddox photo studio. And so catalogs, they were doing still lives, four by five and eight by 10 still lives. Okay. And, um, so I just, they told me to go there and I wanted to do that. So I went there and became 
technically proficient. And then luckily, I wanted to do advertising. And they had a professor at the time named Phil Cohen, Dr. Phil Cohen. And he had had an earlier career as a psychiatrist and then decided to bag it and become a photographer like Howard Schatz was a dentist, you know. And uh, he was like a stereotype. He was like John Hausman in The Paper Chase, you know, tweed jackets, leather things, bow tie, and just psychologically decided who actually was going to do this and who was just phoning it in for, to get a degree for their dad. And those guys and girls, he just said, this looks great. You did the assignment well. And then those of us that he decided actually were going to become photographers, yeah. he just raped us. I mean, he would, he'd look at you and you'd put a transparency up and, and flash to the class and he'd say, well, gentlemen, what does, what's the story with this picture? And if there were divergent thoughts, he would just look at you and say, well, Mr. Whitaker, obviously you failed this assignment and handed it back. And he knew that he knew certain of us, that kind of conversation, yeah. would we'd freak out and get office hours afterwards. And I go, you know, Dr. Cohen, I, I just don't understand. And he would just interrupt me. He said, well, that's the problem, isn't it, Mr. Whitaker? <laughs> <laughs> and you just sort of walk out. And it was continuously like that for... for it was boot camp. Yeah, for 14 months, it was just him just teaching you to think about what story, you know, I know it's a really cliche thing, um, but I do it in my seminars and classes is, does the picture tell a story? And I know that's a real cliche and it doesn't need to be a deep story. It can be happy kid, cute dog, tragic war. It, It can be a very simple story, but it has to tell a story. And if you don't see a story in the picture, then it's a fail. It's a fail. And that was instilled with Phil Cohen and, and all of us that went through his program. Um, it was really interesting. It was an interesting thing. And so then I finished school and was still just a great technician. Okay. I knew how to light. I understood all the physics of light and the, the postulates, you know, the truisms of how to light something, you know, size of the Lumiere, relationship to the size of the subject, dictates the, the edge shadow, or the shadow edge. So I understood all that stuff. You just I, didn't know who you were yet. I didn't know what it was. And then I went to New York. I, I went to New York in, in the mid-'70s. And because I realized that there was no future in Los Angeles. You, so you moved to New York in the mid I moved to New York. Okay. I, I came, I finished school and came down to LA. And the only real work in LA that was hiring assistants and stuff was uh, Flesh. There was Playboy and Penthouse. Okay. Um, Marilyn Grabowski had Playboy Studio West. And there were six photographers working out of that. And then Bob Guccione had uh, Penthouse Studios. And mm-hmm. there were three or four photographers, including himself, working out of there. And it wasn't really my interest, but I also realized on any level, even the still life photographers for for Playboy, they weren't that much older than me and they weren't going to quit. And so I realized there was just no future in Los Angeles. So I moved to New York. I wanted to be an advertising photographer, so I moved to New York. 
And what, who was cool. the first photographer who, when you, let's say you graduated from school, who was the first Avedon or the first someone that you looked at and said, wow, this is a master and didn't, you didn't, didn't. nothing. Just, I knew how to process E3. I knew how to light. I knew how to lug stuff. But there was no, there was no association with the greater industry or history of photography no. yet. Okay. No, not until I moved to New York. Okay. And then I moved to New York and my first job was for a really great photographer and a really nice guy named Gordon Monroe, an English guy who was doing uh, fashion pictures, mm -hmm. a steady worker, a gentleman in every sense of the word. No yelling, no screaming, no histrionics, just let's come to work, let's do our job, let's have a nice lunch, let's clean the studio and let's go home, you know, and lovely ladies are here and it's, it was all good. So then I heard that there's a photographer named Michael O'Neill. Oh, yeah. And right sure. now, Michael O'Neill is uh, uh, living in the yoga world. Okay. Yeah, but, sure. But at the time, in the 70s, Michael O'Neill was the still life photographer in New York City. He had a studio at Broadway and 20th Street. There were three assistants. There was a studio manager and two assistants. And it was intense on every level. You stayed there till midnight every day. We used to joke, well, let's go home to our room. And actually, I was living with the four assistants that were there. I was living with two of them. So the three of us would go home in the uh, take the subway together and come to work in the morning. And he was doing all the major still lifes. He was doing tobacco, um, liquor, Tanqueray, Johnny Walker, all of it. Every day, it would be, you know, you'd come in and do Marlboro before lunch, and then you'd do Johnny Walker after lunch. And, and these, are, these are, for those of you out there who don't know, these are big advertising jobs. At the time, at the time, in 1976, Michael O'Neill was probably making $7,500 for a still life of a pack of cigarettes. Okay. And he was doing that. Every day, five days a week, all the time. Yeah. We were never slow, never, ever. And so, you know, we would go pick up Michael's apartment in one of the towers on Central Park South. It was an interesting time. And it, the industry in the 70s was that way because the only way you could advertise your product was three ways. You could buy a TV schedule, you could buy a radio schedule, and you could buy a print schedule. That was it. That was the only way you could get to eyeballs. So, so you know, it was based upon, you know, a, a creative uh, account exec would invariably brag how much money they were paying to insert this ad. So let's say we were doing a Johnny Walker black ad. The account exec would come in and say, yeah, you know, the schedule's starting next week and the insertion rate, we're gonna spend $4.7 million inserting this ad for the next quarter. Well, you know, the agent for Michael O'Neill would go, if you're paying $4.7 million to insert this, we do get a fair amount to Pause. Okay, we're gonna Jasper. We're gonna pause. We're gonna pause, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna come back. I'm not really gonna pause. I'm just gonna stay here and talk because Jasper, who is uh, furry, white, very excitable, uh, came in, gave me the smells, 
pretty much gave me the gave me the once over, twice over. Is he in the kennel or is he? Uh, he's in his crate now. He's going to come out. He might mount a little bit, but he just wants to be here. Oh yeah, no big deal. No, we like uh, dogs are welcome <coughs> on the interview. So, so Michael O'Neill, it was it was an intense. <laughs> here he is. He'll, he'll get bored and leave us alone. Yeah, he'll get bored soon. Um, so Michael. Uh, it, w it was an intense studio, and uh, I worked there for a while, and it became a little too intense, so I quit. And then I, by that time, there was a, it was a small community. All yeah. the assistants knew everybody, you know, our, our little gang of assistants, there were maybe eight of us. We called ourselves turkey bookings, and if you called one turkey, you were guaranteed to get a turkey. You could call somebody and they'd call you and say, hello, and no, I'm booked that day, but I got somebody that can come in. And we were trusted that of the turkeys, you were always covered. So um, that's a pretty good start in photography. Yes. Yeah, so we were assisting Michael O'Neill. We were assisting uh, uh, Gordon Monroe, Barbara Bordnick, Jean Pagliuso, Patrick Demachelier. Uh, the, uh, basically the new, the new wave of photography in the 70s, in the late 70s. There was a fundamental shift. Uh, there's a great book by Michael Gross called Focus that you should read. It's about uh, the change in the fashion business in the 70s, in the mid-70s. Uh, it went from a certain look to more of a journalistic look and... Uh, uh, there was a French wave of, of uh, Patrick Del Machelier and Alex Chatelaine and, and, uh, and Jacques you, Malignon. Were you shooting on the side while you were assisting? No. I, assisting no. I, if, yeah. For me, so I left Michael O'Neill and I went to Jerry Friedman's studio. And Jerry Friedman was a nice guy. He was another... <laughs> what is he now, doing? He's, his, uh, <laughs> his bones are in a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> that is a first, and I'm definitely not stopping because he he's now bringing bones over. Oh, this classic dog dog one interview zero. Yeah, dude, you are so, killing us. All right, I'm gonna ignore him. So <laughs> anyway, you might have to go back to jail, bud. <laughs> oh my god. So, so I now thought I could do this without um, <laughs> without my Labrador Retriever becoming part of the issue. So, so you're um, now at the Friedman studio. So I went to I got I got hooked up with Jerry Friedman, and Jerry Friedman was also doing. <laughs> okay, so that didn't work. We're, we're now we're now. Uh, so Jasper went over to a bowl filled with bones, which sounded like someone slamming together, uh, as you could probably hear, wooden things, glass, uh, incredibly loud. Now he's going back to his little vacation rental otherwise known as the kennel. And uh, I'm definitely not stopping the interview because that was, uh, that was really funny. So, so anyway, I go to, uh, so when in that small world of assistance, when word got out that Michael O'Neill's studio manager was on the loose, yeah, you were qualified. You, you didn't even need a resume or anything. You, you, we were getting calls. Um, um, 
Yeah, and a good then assistant. I found, I found it's huge. I was working for a really great woman named Barbara Bordnick. Sure. And Barbara Bordnick knew this uh, agent uh, named Joey D. Bartolo. And Joey <laughs> D. Bartolo was repping this guy, Jerry Friedman. And he said, "You would you like to come work there? And I said, fine. And I quickly became the studio manager there. And that was a big production still life studio. There, they were doing tobacco. Uh, they were doing liquor, and they were doing um, Macy's on a regular basis. And uh, it was just high volume. There were five assistants, so it wow. was it was a big studio, and we were working a lot. And so I worked there for about a year, and then to be perfectly honest, I told. Uh, by that time, there was a new agent named Ronaldo Fratillo, and Ronaldo knew a photographer named Arthur Elgort. Oh yeah, this and, is this is where it began. And so Artie, uh, by that time, I was still just a technician. I didn't own, a, I didn't have a walk around camera because mm-hmm. you can't walk around with an eight by ten, and uh, unlike Joel Meyerowitz who does, um, but. Uh, um, you were just. The- I got this. I just wanted to meet some girls. To be honest, I wanted to meet some girls. I was sick of working in a still life studio with all guys, and and I was just, you know, we got to get out of here. We got to meet some girls. <laughs> so Ronaldo said, "Well, you know, you'll be around girls more than you are here for sure. You go talk to Arthur Elgort." Well, since I was such a technician, I had absolutely no idea that Arthur Elgort in the late 70s was just really taking off and was becoming the Condé Nast photographer. Yeah. So Mademoiselle, Self, Vogue, Self wasn't in magazine, a title then, but, but Mademoiselle and uh, Vogue. Dude, Vogue alone. And, I mean, Jesus. and Europe. He was spending huge amounts of time in Europe, six months a year in Europe, doing, uh, you know, as a fashion photographer, Europe is key because every country has their own set of publications. So here in the United States, 275 million people in the 70s have a Vogue, a Mademoiselle, a Cosmopolitan, but Belgium has those magazines, and so does England, and so does France, and so does Germany. So there's just huge amounts of magazines being published. So that was the place you went as a fashion photographer to practice. You went to, you to went Europe. To Europe. So, I went to interview with Arthur Elgort, and since I had no clue who he was, That's he was asking me questions, you know, uh, uh, you know, yes, I can fly an 8x10, yes, I understand, uh, you know, all the technical stuff, and he was just like, oh, now I have a technical nerd that can help me execute my vision of stuff that I've never been able to do because I don't have a clue how to do it. And on my side, it was like, what is this guy? You know, I was in his apartment on the Upper uh, West Side on Central Park West in one of the towers, and he's sitting on the back of this old deco couch with his pipe and a tea, and he's asking me questions. And and I thought, you know, I'd come from this really uptight still life thing where the where, you know, the art director for Revlon could actually see 0.025 magenta in a transparency and insist that it was corrected. So I was uber nerd, and I get to Arthur, and he's, you're hired. (laughs) So, So he was going on a trip with his assistant at the time, uh, and they were going to, to Hong Kong. 
for a job for Vogue Patterns. And they went to Hong Kong, and I was left alone in the studio to organize it. I completely organizing. Uh, that Yelp will continue through this podcast of my it's Labrador totally in the other room. Anyway, um, so... You were left alone in the I studio. I was left alone in the studio, and I just was left alone. And one of the things that I had from being a geek was organizing. Cleanliness and organization makes the studio run smooth. So I completely organized, clean, freshened it up. And when they came back three weeks later, I was standing there like ready for inspection, General. And Arthur walked in the front door and burst right back past me and said, I never want to see her ever again. And went in his room and slammed the door. And I'm thinking, uh, hamina, hamina, hamina. That was his assistant. And the hairdresser comes in and he goes, yeah, we had a problem. We shot 300 rolls of Kodachrome. And it was in, at that time, Kodak made these insulated bags that were the shape of film boxes. Yep. The 300 rolls of Kodachrome was in one of those bags and she left it on the airplane. Oh. So a job of, you know, probably a crew of eight people to Hong Kong at huge expense, she left the film on the plane. So needless to say, when they went to say, we've left the film on the plane, you can imagine someone at JFK sticks his head in the door, just sticks his head in, looks up and down and goes, I don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) And so it took them like eight hours to finally get this film out of the overhead bag off of the plane. And needless to say, she was done. And I became Arthur Elgort's studio manager factotum. And it was perfect because I was ready. I had nothing else. I had no girlfriend. I had no action. And Arthur, the first day, looks at me and says, uh, uh, is your passport in order? I said, I, I, I don't even have a passport. He said, well, you need to get one now because we're going to Europe in a week. <laughs> and we'll be there for probably a month and a half. Well, now, I'm like a surfer kid from North Hollywood. This is so far out of my reality. I, uh, so the next... He's going to keep doing that. Yeah, and I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll put a blanket over him or something. No, no, don't worry about it. Anyway, so... um, Good to know Jasper. Anyway, uh, my very first shooting job with Arthur... I had come from a world where you never, ever exposed a sheet of film, ever, until everything was tested five sheets to the wind. You tested the light. You tested everything. You sent film out to test it. You got the film back. You tested the line, everything. My first job with Arthur Elgort was with a model named Rosie Vela, who was, uh, uh, at that time, her boyfriend was this artist named Peter Max. Okay, sure. Who's a pop artist. Yeah. You know, he did the Yellow Submarine, yeah. Peter Max. So we go to Peter Max's apartment with Rosie Vela, with American Vogue, um, close a fabulous editor named Polly Allen Mellon, who was just wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. And uh, she was from the Diana Vreeland School, who was the original Vogue editor. And, uh, and we're up at, Rosie, at Peter Max's apartment. And Arthur has, has me bring an 8x10 with loaded holders with black and white end color. 
He has a Konica 35 millimeter camera because he didn't care for the camera, but there was a 58 millimeter normal lens that Konica made that he liked. And he couldn't get an adapter to put it on a Nikon or anything. So we had a Konica body for that lens. We had Olympus Pen, uh, it half was frame. one of the first, no, it was one of the original Olympus pens were very small, not the half frame, but the next one up, Olympus, it was about the size of the current Sony mirrorless. Okay. It was a small little light compact camera and the motor drive was a pistol grip and, and it had Zucchio lenses and Arthur liked it and liked that it was very lightweight. So we had that system. Then we had Nikon FEs because he liked those lenses. He liked, especially like the 10525. Yep, yep. And he liked the, uh, um, the 85 millimeter F2. He liked those lenses. So we had those. Then we had a Hasselblad with an 80 millimeter lens. And then we had a Tele Roloflex 2.8. We had that. And he would just try stuff. And I am literally sweating. I cannot tell you how freaked out I was because I took it personal. As the assistant, I had been taught in all the still life studios I worked at in my little 22 years of life that it was my responsibility, it was his responsibility to make sure it came out aesthetically fantastic. Yeah. It was my job to make sure it came out on every level. The holders, the film, the color balance, the Everything was the studio manager's responsibility. Yeah. So I went from a world where I had great comfort to when I, I put in a 8 by 10 holder and pulled the slide and handed the cable release to the still life photographer that I knew it would come out perfect. Yeah. It was his job to put what was in front of the camera and make it beautiful. My job to make him out. So now I go with Arthur Elgord, and the first thing we're up at this apartment, the light's changing every second. We're shooting daylight. We're shooting at a 30th of a second wide open. We're doing this camera and that camera and black and white and color and 8x10 and 4x5 and antique cameras I'd never seen before. <laughs> and he can sell. I'm visually, I'm, I'm sweating. I'm literally sweating. I'm, I, I'm, and, and Arthur smoked a pipe at the time, and he just sucked in the pipe, and he looked at me, and he said, my boy, my boy, it's a rendering. It's a rendering. It'll be fine. It's a rendering. Relax. It's more about the picture than it is about the stuff. Don't let the stuff get in the way of the picture. And that was the most profound thing Artie ever said to me. It changed fundamentally everything. That day, I became a photographer. I had not been before that. I was a technician who worked in the photo industry. Yeah. Arthur Elgort... That day with Rosie Vell and Peter Max, I became a photographer. I started to realize that uh, the stuff was irrelevant. You needed to be aware of it. You needed to understand your technique mm -hmm. enough to so it didn't get in it. the way. Yeah. It didn't get in the way. You know, when I teach, I tell people, I go, look, it's muscle memory. Imagine how difficult it would be if every time you took a step, you would go, okay, I'm going to put, shift my weight to my left foot, and I'm going to move my right foot forward, and now I'm going to shift my weight to my right foot and move my left foot forward. You'd never get anywhere yeah. because your subconscious just does it. Well, once you do technique and build your photo muscle, you, you get you get to where you just can execute without thinking about it. Yeah. You, you can sort of feel that 
Tri-X rated at ISO 250, processed normally, will give a nice negative, and that you know that this room, even without taking the light reading, is probably going to be uh, uh, 125th wide open. And you just yeah. feel that after so much experience. That's right. So with Artie, it became that way. It became this, this experimentation of test it. You don't know. It could come out shitty. We'll test it. We'll give it a try. It'll come out fine. Yeah. Or not. And if it's or not, well, then we know why or not, and we won't do that again, and we'll do something different. And so I ended up working for Arthur Elgort for three years. I went around the world three times. Is he still alive? Yes. And uh, Now, I'm guessing at the same time you started to learn about the lifestyle of a photographer. And now that you're technically proficient, and now you're realizing there's this whole other world out there that he's exposing you to. It's not just about the photography. It's about all these other things. It's, it's all a of a sudden I never, I never went anywhere without a camera. Arthur never went anywhere without a camera. Ever. Ever. It's like Jimi Hendrix with his guitar. He would go out to parties at night and, and just take an electric guitar with no amp and play at the parties yeah. by himself. I'll be yeah. back. I'm going to peace. I'll be back. You're going to pee or you're going no, to... Uh, so we're going we're gonna to try to hide the dog. We're going to scrim the dog off. So we're, we're going to, uh, he's going to put a blanket across the entrance to the room so that the dog can't see us during oh, the interview. Sorry. No, it's all right. I just love it. I mean, all right, so, um, so, so he, he, I love the fact that he went, because one of the things that he went everywhere with the camera, one thing that drives me crazy and I just heard this at Palm Springs Photo Festival this year, someone that you know and I know, that I've know, we've known for a long time. I was walking around with a camera, like I always do, and he made some, and I, I like him, I don't, not like I don't like this person, but he said, you know, he made some crack about me walking around with a camera because he shoots, you know, official jobs, shoots, whatever. And I used to assist for a guy who, who looked uh, at a client one time and said, I'm not a guy that carries a camera because that was beneath him. And, he's, and we were doing big advertising shoots, whatever. And it, I always kind of thought, that's really weird. I mean, it's one way of looking at it. Like, and basically what he was saying was, I don't, I don't take a picture unless someone's paying me to take a picture. I know a lot of photographers that, that if they're not getting paid, they won't touch a camera. Yeah. And I always have a camera with me. You yeah, know, you do. Or something to try, you know. And, and, you know, Arthur, one of the interesting things was... Uh, that whole notion of I'll go to my room. Arthur's studio was at uh, his apartment slash workspace uh, was uh, at 90th and Central Park West. And I lived at 80th and West End Avenue. So I was only 10, 12 blocks away. And it was primarily just me. We would do freelancers to help if I needed extra hands, but it was basically me. So I assisted I also kind of repped him a little bit. It, it, he he didn't have a rep at the time because he was working magazines and they found him. Mm -hmm. So I'd negotiate the prices for him because I had that still life experience. Mm -hmm. And I always had still life agents I could call and say, Ronaldo, already just got this job. What do you think? And he he talked me down about what to bid. And, uh, and then also I did all the billing, all the paperwork. So... 
you were building your foundation. For... It was fine for me. And yeah. I literally would spend from seven in the morning until midnight. And I would leave and Arthur would be in his room watching TV or reading or whatever. And I, I'd say, good night. And I'm going to go to my room and have a nap and come back. And when we were in Europe for months on end, you know, we were staying in the same hotel and I'd meet him in the morning. And so I got used to, you know, he'd say, I'm going out tonight. And part of the drill was I needed to load his camera, make sure the batteries were good. The, the, the little, you know, Buttons. button battery was good. The MR, the, what was it? Oh, yeah, R76. Yeah. yeah. And that the batteries were good and that he had a couple rolls of film in his pocket and that he was good to go. Um, and so I realized that, and then I, you know, met all the photo dealers. So I knew, you know, there was a great, he just passed away, there was a great uh, photo store called Ken Hansen. Oh, yeah, I just, he, he did just he die. He just that's, passed away. Uh, yeah, and that Ken sucks. Hansen was an institution in New York. Yeah, he was. Um, and, uh, you know, Kenny got me a, you know, news was out and he you know i was always in there with arthur because arthur would make money and he'd go to ken hansen's and buy a new toy yeah buy a linhoff technica and an exquisite machine german something that we'd go on a trip with and here we had a new four by five you know an arrow linhoff but ken you know got me my first used nikor fe with that 85 f2 and that was my walk around camera and i got used to having it with me all the time and shooting my own things of my friends and we'd go to the hamptons or we'd do something and i started to become a photographer i owe everything to arthur elgort everything Dude, every what, what every bit mentor. of my career to what, arthur. i mean like, was huge. For someone like me to hear that story, I could hear it a hundred times and it still doesn't seem real. It was huge. That you leapfrogged like that and then ended up with him and he interviewed you smoking a pipe and then you end up traveling to Europe and then we're going to get to the to the China story later. Um, it's just... We went around the world. We yeah, went everywhere. It's insane. We went to Thailand. We went to China. We went to Japan. We went to... We went everywhere, especially Europe. We spent a lot of time in Europe. Which is eventually where you ended up. Yeah, because I started to realize, you know, I think when you, when you grow up in Southern California, the education system, you, you can't even, why would you leave? Foreign language, why do you need foreign language? <laughs> Besides being able to speak Spanish enough to maybe talk to uh, the staff somewhere. Yeah. You know? You know, it was just, why would you leave? Yeah. You know, why would you have a passport? What, you, you're in Southern California. You're yeah, in the promised this land. This yeah. is it. So, you know, uh, at that time, you sort of had the feeling that, you know, German people, you know, jumped in the hay wagon in their dirndls and lederhosen and went to work, you know, <laughs> not thinking that someone's actually manufacturing Mercedes Benz and they actually keep some. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so when I got to Europe, it was like uh, I could live here. This was yeah. fantastic. It was really great. And uh, the fashion world was kind of insular. So, you know, you could get by with a little French and a little German and a little Spanish and uh, and a lot of English. And it was fine. So, so, so how, I, you were with Artie for three years. For three years. And then what, what you bailed and went to, to Europe on your own. Actually, I remember the trip we were going through that this uh, Arasarian uh, TWA terminal at TWA, which they just revived. And we were on TWA and we were going to Thailand for 
Vogue patterns. And Artie looked at me at uh, the thing, and I was shooting something. I was shooting the architecture because this, it's this dreamy, curvy. If, if you ever have a chance uh, to look up on the internet, look up the, the Aerosarian uh, TWA terminal at JFK in New York. It's, uh, it's the most amazing, curvy, dreamy bit of architecture. And so I was shooting that, and I sat down, and Arthur looked at me, and he said, class is over, isn't it? And I, it dawned on me, I realized, because he could even see, I was more interested in my pictures yeah. than I was in his. And that was a fundamental shift, because up to then, I had been only interested in his pictures, yeah. where the models helping him was everything helping him. So that's, all of a sudden, That's I'm, so 1970s. That's definitely not 2019. <laughs> and I'm looking at, at, you know, at things all of a sudden, I was shooting what I liked. So uh, class was over, and um, it wasn't a, a total break because at that time there was only two or three rental studios, small rental studios in New York City. Pretty much everybody had their own studio. And uh, there was one on Fifth Avenue named Taka Studio, and there was a few others. And so we realized that maybe we could build a... a I had a little college money left over and uh, could borrow money from friends and family. And so we started a rental studio. And fortunately, at the time, the, the creative director of uh, Condé Nast was a guy named Alexander Lieberman. And Mr. Lieberman was very supportive of longtime Condé Nast photographers. Before okay. Arthur, it was Horst P. Horst, yeah. and it was Avedon, and it was, you know, once you were a Condé Nast photographer, if you stayed loyal to Condé Nast and yeah. didn't jump ship to Bazaar or any place else, yep. Mr. Lieberman would support you. If, you know, you said, you know, I, I really think we should start a rental studio, Mr. Lieberman came down to the the space in his beautiful silver gray suit and impeccably starched shirt and beautiful shoes and walked through the space and said, you know, hands behind his back looking around, well, my boy, I think you should put a light maple floor and I think all white walls, maybe some curves. And th that was an amazing, and then made sure that when it was completed, Every job Arthur did was at the rental studio, and even though it was, quote, his studio, yeah. it was the rental was paid. So it worked out really well. And then I started shooting in New York on my own a little bit because I had this dreamy studio out of the box that was paid for but from rentals. Yeah, And it, it was rented because we let all of our friends know. You know, Uli Rose, Alex Chatelaine, Patrick de Machelier, uh, Bruce Weber, all those photographers from the 70s and 80s were young guys and, and working for Connie Nassen, and they all came to the studio. Wow. So Wow, that's, that's incredible. It was, you know, you got to see everybody all the time, and yeah. I knew them all um, myself, and it was just a small club. So it was, it was fun. But I realized that, I started working and making a pretty good money in New York, uh, but I realized I was never going to get as better. How can I phrase this? Working for Arthur Elgort and around those guys and around the Vogues and around the, the pinnacle of fashion photography at the moment, it set the bar. I understood what it took to play in those guys' league. Yeah. 
and that when I started working, and I was working for Seventeen Magazine, I was working for Mademoiselle, I was, you know, the baby photographer. I was, you know, 26, 27 years old, and I was the baby photographer. And the editors that I had known that said, when you're on your own, call us, you know, 75% of them was who? <laughs> you know, but 25% of them said, oh, yeah, we got a job for you. You know, uh, Catherine Sabino gave me 17 magazine. And from that, I got, you know, French L and got, you know, started in. But I realized that if I was going to play in the league, I needed to get much better. I needed to have a little bit of taste other than in my mouth. So, <laughs> so I moved to Europe. Uh, the studio was Where? on, and I, I moved to Paris. Paris. I moved to Paris. Good choice. And, uh, and Excellent I, choice. I, got a, I moved to Paris um, in 1980 and uh, stayed there through 85 and, uh, you know, traveled to Europe as young fashion photographers do. You know, at that time, it was uh, the, the crew was uh, Don Ashby, who, who runs First Look now, doing all the fashion shows. George Holtz. Um, I met George last year at the festival. Yeah, for George is ago. a great guy. And uh, uh, it was just a group of photographers. Paris is an incredibly good place to be underemployed. You know, it's one of those places in the world where, you know, if you're hanging around in Germany or hanging around in London and you're not working, you're... You know, why aren't you working, you bum? Why aren't you working? In Paris, if you're not working, oh, fantastic. We go make a lunch. You know, we go hang out. And, and you know, we'd all hang out together. And uh, uh, Single at this time? Single, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and probably meeting some women. Meeting some women. But, yeah. but one of the interesting things with Arthur Elgort was Arthur Elgort was obsessed with the ballet. And it was one of the cultural references that I got with from Arthur that I've always been uh, grateful for was Arthur liked fashion and liked all that business, but he was obsessed with the ballet. Wow. And so we would finish our jobs as fast as we could and go to the New York City Ballet. Because at that time, New York City Ballet was run by a man named Lincoln Kirsten and uh, a man named George Balanchine. And they founded the New York City Ballet. And they were running it. And, and we went and did a presentation. And I pretended to be Arthur's agent. And we went and made a presentation to Mr. Kirsten and Mr. Balanchine and took them Vogue covers. Vogue covers and editorial magazines. And, and they prided themselves on that the New York City Ballet, everyone was beautiful. At the time, it was Peter Martins, and it was Mikhail Berezhnikov, and it was beautiful women, Susan Farrell, Heather Watts. It was beautiful prima ballerinas. And, uh, um, and like so Vogue pictures, they were used to ballet photographers coming to try and get in to the New York City Ballet, and we were bringing them fashion pictures, and, and they were enamored that you'll make our ballerinas look like fashion models. Yeah. And so they, in return for letting Arthur keep the copyright, they wouldn't pay, but they gave us total unlimited access to the New York City Ballet 
365. We could just, I could walk into the State Theater in New York City anytime I wanted. Hi, George. Hi, Clarissa at the gate. You know, go into the wardrobe department. I knew everybody. We traveled with them. We went to L'Opera in Paris. We went to a season in Saratoga in upstate New York. We went to London, Covent Garden. We did all these tours. And for me, uh, being a straight guy uh, in a company of, you know, 60 prima ballerinas yeah it was awesome staggering it was it was awesome it was fantastic it was everything i had hoped for and more (laughs) (laughs) and more and uh and it was just it was fun and so you know not only was i getting a cultural reference of you know all of a sudden this little kid from north hollywood high i i knew the difference between azadine alaya and and Claude Montana and Yves Saint Laurent and and uh, Ralph Lauren and I understood what they were doing and why they were doing it because we would be photographing them and I would overhear their interviews with the Vogue editors. Uh, there's a, a, a woman named Vera Wang who has sure. a passion yeah. line now. Well, yeah. she was one of the Vogue editors then. We traveled the world with Vera and I would listen to Vera's interviews and so. You know, just by osmosis, you would pick up what was going on. So I had this fashion thing starting to develop to where I understood that. But then on the other side of it, I knew nothing about ballet. And all of a sudden, I knew about ballet. I understood the roots and I understood uh, the pure athleticism of it and the dedication that it takes. I mean... uh, It's hardcore. Ballet dancers, men and women, are the most intense jocks you can't imagine. You cannot imagine. You know, they'll go, uh, you know, when they run by football players and basketball players, their accomplishments, and you just look and go, well, this ballet guy, you know, you're saying that 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 football player can jump up on top of a 30-inch box with great effort, swing his arms. Well, that ballet guy looks beautiful, arms out perfect, hands perfect, and he just boing, jumps up 40 (laughs) inches, I don't know, 10, 15 times in a row, spinning twice in the air as he does this. And they do it day in and day out. Yeah, and and the competition is brutal. Yeah. So that was... uh, Oh, I have just a total side story. When I was... uh, So I have an older brother, older sister. And when we were younger, uh, my parents came to them, my brother first, and said, you, can, you have a choice. You can play guitar or you can play drums. So they wanted us to get into music. So my, um, I was born in 69. So my brother comes along. My mom says, guitar or drums? And he's like, guitar. And he still plays today. My sister comes along three years later. And my mom says, you can play guitar or you can play piano. And my sister, <laughs> because my brother played guitar, was like, no way in hell I'm playing guitar. I'm taking piano. So she took piano hippie boy here comes along my parents by this time my mom says to me you can play piano or take ballet and this we lived in a little tiny town in in rural indiana and i thought to myself if i take ballet i'm gonna get killed on the playground the second someone finds out i'm dead so i took piano and hated it and uh (laughs) i look back now and i'm like man i wish i would have taken ballet because it's i mean just put gets you in an amazing shape and it's an incredible thing. It's amazing. Thing. And every yeah. once in a while, I remember one year we had this summer season and uh, um, it might have been 
Syracuse, Cuse, sent a couple football players, sent a couple, uh, uh, a, w- a couple wide receivers and some defensive backs to at the to School train. of American Ballet to train. And they first came in and were like, you know, really awkward. But then they quickly saw how amazing th- yeah. these guys were and that their understanding of their body in space because you think of how that would apply to a, a wide receiver or sure. a wide defensive back running backwards turning looking over yeah. your shoulder well the ballet guys they, they've got that down easy you yeah. know and they can toss a girl while they're doing it you know yeah. so so that was fantastic so so now you're you're in europe you've been there for five years in paris and then what happens then uh I started to speak French well enough to where I really understood what was going on and realized I had to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back to New York. I came back to New York. And by that time, now, now that I had, you know, five years of Europe, now I was by no means. So. But, well, but, I, I think what it was was. But here, here's the thing. Hang on before we go any further. So we're almost at an hour. And I knew this was going to happen because what this is going to become is the first interview of many. You have because, to divide it. Yeah. Well, because there, you have a lot more to talk about. But there's a – I think if we – I'm trying to think of a good place to stop on the first interview. When I start which, doing kids. Okay. We'll so stop there. All right. Keep going. So, so I come back to New York, and I started to realize – I started to understand to the core that – that what made the fashion photographers, the ones that were at the pinnacle, mm-hmm. was their ability to make distinctions. Arthur could just look at a girl and know whether she was going to be able to move for him. He just had those distinctions. It was just automatic. Um, I remember sitting in Paris with George Holtz and, and Don Ashby and a, this guy named Mark Bugzester, good photographer, and uh, this guy Joe Gaffney, and we were all talking, and they were, they were ragging on a makeup artist. And they were saying, you know, God, she just can't paint a mouth. She cannot put the lipstick on. Because makeup artists put lipstick on with a paintbrush to get that perfect lip line. And I thought she was fine. Seemed fine to me. And... Th- I didn't realize it at the time, but then, you know, six months later when I went back to New York, I started to realize that the reason George Holtz was going to stay a fashion photographer was he had the ability to make those distinctions that I didn't. I could take a good picture. I had nice movement. I, I had great rapport with the models. I had great rapport with the editors. I could acquit myself gracefully for a job. But to get to that next level... Mm-hmm. I could not make those distinctions. It wasn't inherent for me. So, so I started to search for, you know, uh, what else can I do? Because uh, I was in fashion and I was working for everyone and I started to fall from fashion. Okay. All of a sudden, I was not doing so much Mademoiselle anymore. I was not doing French Vogue anymore. I was not doing these things. And I said, well, yeah. And so what I, 
I did know, I had an assistant who, uh, actually a guy, maybe some people might know, named Danny Clinch. He's oh one of the great God. rock and roll photographers yeah. of all time. Yeah, for sure. And Danny Clinch was my assistant. You're and kidding me. Danny I had no said, idea. Danny said, uh, I, I want to go out on my own. What should I do? Well, I had an agent at the time who had a kid's photographer. And her Hasselblad had jammed, and she sent everybody home. And my agent told me that, and I was like, are you kidding? Because I wasn't working that much. Yeah. I go, she was working for Macy's doing a kid's catalog, and that camera jammed, so she sent everyone home. She didn't have a backup camera. She did, <laughs> and, and the agent just interrupted me, held her hand up, and said, no, she didn't. <laughs> so serendipity, like... Three days later, Danny Clinch goes, I want to go on my own. What should I do? And I shot a shot of scotch, chased it with a beer and said, you know what, bub? You need to become a kid's photographer because I tell you what, nobody has a fucking clue and you really should be doing this. And he looks, you know, I don't really like kids, but I really like rock and roll. And I said, well, you know. Yeah. You should be a rock and roll photographer then. Do what you really like. If you like it, be a rock and roll photographer. And he was living in Jersey, so he knew the Stone Pony, and he knew, you know, stumbled into this guy named Bruce. And <laughs> yeah, just um, a little Just little, a little thing. Anyway, yeah. but so... so That is hysterical. I had no idea that Danny Clinch was... So then, then I, uh, I one day after a particularly horrific catalog day... <laughs> Hey, he's getting, he's getting, getting anxious. anxious. He okay. wants it's been, it's so, been, so I had a particularly bad catalog day. And at the end of the catalog day, the kids arrived after school at like three o'clock. And I thought to myself, I go, well, finally, the genuine folks have walked into the room and everybody else is heading for the door. And I'm actually laughing and having a good time. And I started to notice I have distinctions that I didn't even know I had. I can look at a three-year-old and know whether that three-year-old is going to help us out on this job. And so I uh, had a friend in Connecticut who had, we all had a bunch of kids and he had, uh, it's a long story, but he had a fire truck. He had bought an auction, a fire truck, and he had a 1950s fire truck and barns and antique classrooms. And I said, you know, let me come up and we'll do a kid's shooting day and we'll wash the fire truck and then we'll go to the schoolhouse and then we'll, we'll go in the forest or something. Yeah. And I did this huge test. And I came back to one of my clients and I showed him the pictures and he said, these are fantastic. It was a, a company, it was Bloomingdale's. And the art director of Bloomingdale's, I, I had been working for them like uh, two days a week. And I showed him these pictures and he said, these are great. And then no work. And I went back up and I said, Richard, what? what, what what's the work? And he looked at me and he said, oh, well, I just thought you were doing kids. And it was a gut punch. I was like, oh, my God. And I got in the elevator, and I remember this clearly. It was an epiphany. <laughs> the elevator door closed, and I just said out loud, I said, you know, you're right. I do kids. And from that moment on, I started to focus on doing kids. And I just did kids and had an advertising career shooting kids for 
22 years. And when you, I was going to say, when you say photographing kids, it's not like individual commissions. You're shooting advertising and commercial Cheerios, work based Huggies, around Pampers. Yeah. Uh, Again, Eastern big, Airlines, big Pan Am, commercial shoots. Era, yeah. Ford, General Motors, uh, all Okay, of so this was, now you're in New York, and you're, you've got a studio in New York again, which is what's going to pick up the second interview, because there's yeah. one thing about the past that we just skipped over that I want to talk about, and that, that's how we're going to end this first okay. interview, which is two or three years ago at the festival, they do the slideshows at night. So at the Palm Springs Festival, every night, uh, there are two hours of projections, and they start the projections by showing people who have submitted bodies of work for the slideshow. And then they show two or three a night, and at the end of the festival, they choose someone to win the overall slideshow contest. And all of a sudden, this body of work comes across, and it's great music. I can't remember the song. Black and white. And there are basically, it's kind of selfies in, in Paris, I think, or Europe, black and white, at night, famous people, models. And, and I was just, I was... Nightclubs, we're clubbing. I was mesmerized. And then... In the corner of the frame, the person who I'm seeing, because you're bald now, you had very distinctive hair. hair yeah, I time. did. I had, I had a fro. You had a fro. <laughs> and I looked and I thought, oh my God, that almost looks like Ross Whitaker. And then 10 frames in, I'm like, holy cow, that is Ross Whitaker. That body of work is fantastic. And it was literally the more, and over the past couple of years, I think about that body of work all the time. And it, to me, it was kind of maybe the first body of selfie photography that I saw someone do long before someone was doing... I mean, It you was have, rare to have a pocket camera at the time. And there are, were photographers at the clubs, and they had big flashes on their big Nikons with their big motors, and so it was clear there was a photographer. Yeah. And so people responded that way. But I had this little camera called a Minox. It oh, shot 35-millimeter oh, yeah, yeah. film. It had a little door that pulled down, yep. and you preset the focus... Uh, it was only in meters, and so you started to learn meters, and so you realized that you wanted to be at a certain distance. Yep. You'd preset the focus, and there's this thing that people might not know now. It's called hyperfocal distance, yep. and it's what will be in focus. So at F8, at two meters, from a meter and a half to seven meters will be in focus, and you just shoot. And I had this little folding camera in my pocket with a little tiny flash on it, and I would whip it out the way people take their phones out now. Yeah. Well, in 1980, that was a very rare thing. Arthur did it. Arthur always had one. Uli Rose always had one. Certain photographers did. My mom had a Minox 35. And so yeah. it, was, it was special. And they weren't all selfies. No, 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 no. It was, it was just, you know, my friends. We went and, clubbing. And, but these are, and Lagerfeld was in there, right? And you kept Lagerfeld trying to get Lagerfeld. And, and I, he would whip that fan he out. He had a fan out. And, you know, I would lurk around Carl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent and Azadine Alaya and all the designers. And, and, uh, cause we went clubbing a lot. I mean, it was just, Paris was, you know, the fashion industry, all the models, all the model agents, all the photographers. Uh, went clubbing. Did anybody at the time see those images? Very rarely. I would give some away. You know, I would give some away. I, I had a printer in New York, and I would, if a model was coming back to New York, I'd, I'd have the film processed and proofed in uh, Paris, and I'd give them an envelope, and they'd send it home. And I, I had a studio that, I still had the rental studio in New York while I lived in Paris. And there was a lab, a wet lab in there. And I had a very good friend named Debbie Keith. And Debbie Keith, the deal was, I will let you use my darkroom to start your business rent-free. 
And so she became the black and white printer for Bruce Weber and Patrick de Machelier and, and everybody and at the studio at 20th and 5th. And in return for that, whenever I sent home film, some model would come back with a box of prints. Wow. Hundreds of prints. And uh, I still got, when we turn the recorder off, I'll take you in the other room and show you boxes and boxes and boxes of prints of Paris in the 80s. Fun. So that's a good place to end this yeah. first chapter of the interview. Um, I feel like we haven't even started. There's so many other things that we want to talk about, but I appreciate you taking the time to do this now. I also need a little bit of time to make a portrait of you before it gets dark. No problem. Let's do that. And Let's Jasper is, is, is ready to... Jasper, we're going to open He needs that. to get out. He yeah, needs he, to get he, out. And he's going to come out of that kennel like have a bones scalded cat. <laughs> So, uh, again, thanks. Thanks, so, all good. So, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to do a chapter two here. No problem. Or I'll come to uh, You're going to come to Santa Mexico, Fe, and we're going to do Fe. another one. We'll do yeah. more. That's a little foreshadowing for you out there. Uh, I have not posted about this yet, but there is a uh, major transition happening in my life, my wife's life. We are moving to New Mexico. So uh, I'm going to write about that actually soon. The post is already done. I just haven't released it yet. But anyway... Thanks again. The, to the, the career that you had to me is just is mesmerizing. That's the kind of career that, even though I never wanted to shoot fashion, that was the kind of career that I came into photography looking at and saying, that's the life I want to live. This is the, you know, an old timer pulled me aside and said, as a photographer, you'll live in one year what, what a normal person lives in 10. And I, and I totally believe that's true. And you've done amazing stuff. So it was uh, good. stay tuned for, fun. for chapter two. And we'll thanks be again. back. Yes. All right. And Jasper got one last bark in. <laughs>